out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As always, we love a special guest. This week, it is going to be the turn of the legendary Pink Dots because I just spoke to Edward Carspel to find out more about life, love, poetry, his career in music. Plus, they have a new album out titled Angel in the Detail that came out at the end of 2019. And after a bit of casual chat, as you do in the world that is showbiz, we got into that next important point, which is Edward's um, early musical influences and interests. And this was his response. Edward, it's over to you. Very first music, I, I, you know, I actually sort of like a. I suppose marvelled at was was actually the Vonettes. I remember like years and years ago because it sounded so huge, and um, you know it's a whole field specter thing. Yeah. And then yeah, I drifted in and out of music a little bit, but in my early teens, uh, I discovered Pink Floyd, and um, it was um, yeah, that, that was a bit of a game changer, and then. It, it rapidly went into, you know, the bands like Can and Faust and Amandul and all, you know, the whole German uh, thing and sort of like just took off from there, really. Yes. So was it the case? Because cause I've got a brother who's a bit older than me because I mean, I was born in the like mid 60s. So I'm sort of in my mid 50s now. And he was seven years older. And he he introduced me when I was quite young because I was quite obsessed with music, you know, to those kind of very prog rock albums like Umbagumba by Pink Floyd and then sort of Umbagumba, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, great. like um, ge- you know, early Genesis, obviously before Pink, uh, before Phil Collins, and um, you know, and Barkley James Harvest, and with that thrown in with those kind of sounds was kind of a bit of Deep Purple and early Black Sabbath. So that was kind of an early period of music that I I was kind of keen on when I was probably between the ages of I don't know. 10 to 14 that I sort of used to listen to these kind of albums quite a lot so was it but then on the other side you know I was watching Top of the Pops as most people did and listened to the top 40 that used to get played on a Sunday evening and sort of getting very excited with the charts you know because records would move up one place or down one place which seemed quite a large big thing it was a huge it was almost like the royal wedding scandal at the moment you know a, a sort of you know because the things moved quite slowly in those days didn't it you know a record would enter That's sort true. of number 38 yeah. and then the following week could be you know, 32, and we were like, oh, my God, that's so exciting. It could be 28 next week. You know, things didn't just go in at number one particularly. So I just wondered what you were sort of, because you're a little bit, you're just that kind of bit older. So I just wondered what what sort of the music fabric was that you were sort of also, you know, when you started to think, actually, I might try and play an instrument and or, or sort of become, a, I don't know, interested in songwriting. I suppose, I mean, when I wanted, I thought, well, it's time to actually, you know, instead of just consuming, you know, creating. I suppose that was in about my mid-teens. Um, we, we tried a little band at school, basically, with, um, you know, sort of like a friend had a guitar with, uh, like, a lot of effects pedals sort of going. I had, like, a Bon Tempe organ. Um, and we, <laughs> we used the sound of the TV for static noise and things like that. You know, this it, it, it was some... Actually, not not a bad attempt. At, like it was like a kind of weird folk music we were making at that time. But you know, the the only cassettes never survived. Sadly, of that. 
Yes, because you, you had those kind of experimental bands like Comus, and then you oh, know, the, I love Comus, yeah. You know, who were quite out there, and then you had obviously Trackmaster Replica, and then you know the Incredible String Band. You know, kind of like quite far out stuff. So was that kind of music that you were starting to consume yourself? Oh, it's the further out it went, the more I seemed to be into it. To be honest, you know, it's um. You know, Faust was a big game changer for me. Uh, it was really interesting because I actually got to know the guys by now. But, you know, at that time, it was like completely different. Um, yeah, I, I started watching various bands, uh, like in my late teens. Um, but usually, indeed, it was a very left field, very sort of like radical bands that I would all get me out of my chair and um there, there was a good club close to to where i lived in uh Dagenham. oh yeah and, uh, is a, a club called the roundhouse oh yes and they, and they used to be you know they, they actually had some big bands here and there like a like a pink floyd played there for instance although i never got to see that because it was impossible to get a ticket but um, I did see bands indeed like Magma and Faust and actually early Genesis played there uh, with Peter Gabriel. And it wasn't even like full. It was uh, <laughs> quite, quite Henry Cow, I remember, played there. That was great. Yes. And what about people like Hawkwind? Did they sort of enter your sort of consciousness at that stage? Because they were one of those bands a lot of people often mention as like, my God, we saw Hawkwind and we wanted to be in a band. Almost more like, more than sort of the Sex Pistols moment for a lot of Oh, those. totally, yeah. I loved Hawkwind, yeah, yeah, especially the first two albums. Yes. Um, I, I saw them a few times, actually, Hawkwind. Um, it was, in fact, the legendary Pink Dots came about because I went to the Stonehenge Free Festival with some friends. And this is a very strange story, actually, because in the middle of the night... I got up and uh, at exactly at the same time as a couple of as the, like in the neighbouring tents, the, the people I came with, two of them got up as well, walked to the end of the field to watch this band with a full light show going, and and you do I do wonder you know we all remember it, but it feels like it'll, you know a mem- memorising or remembering a dream, <laughs> and um, we were the audience for this band, we were the only audience. <laughs> And you know, they just played. They didn't. They they didn't even really look at us. We just stared at them and the whole. And, and when they finished, we all went back and went into our respective tents. And within a couple of weeks, the legendary Pink Dots was formed. Double synthesizer, a drum machine, and basically thought, well, it's never worked before making music with other people. I'm just going to do it by myself. But then the other guys, uh, who yeah, Phil, who's still in the band, and April, who left uh, I, I guess in the 80s we became the first members of, of the dots yes that's an amazing story that is such a strange story. so was that about 79 your your stonehenge experience it was uh it must have been 1980 1980 definitely 1980 yeah a summer solstice kind of spectacular of kind of uh-huh. um, Oh, excellent. We do love we do love the Stonehenge kind of experiences, especially at the sort of solstices. So did um so when you know, because I haven't done a lot of interviews with bands, often it takes a while for the sound to get together and, and often it's kind of a bit hit and miss whether it's gonna happen. 
you know, like anything was going to come from it. And and often the bands I've seemed to have uh, interviewed a lot from that 80s period, you know, they'd sort of faff around for about, a, you know, 12 months, 18 months and get a single and John Peel would play it and that would give a bit of a John Peel session if they were lucky. And that kind of gave them a bit of a bounce. So how did, how did your own sort of narrative go at that early stage? Um, basically, we... Uh, I had... I was fascinated by other bands in France and Germany. And it, in fact, just in order to hear their cassettes, I would send cassettes of what uh, I was doing with the Pink Dots. It wasn't really a particularly a promotional thing or something. I, I just wanted to exchange cassettes. And, um, but the word started going around about what we were doing. And um, suddenly we were receiving offers from here and there. Um, I did answer and, an advertisement in the Melody Maker, I think it was, from uh, a label that uh, basically was looking for uh, material. And um, it was funny because uh, the guy from the, the label, I remember, first of all, when I, my first contact was, well, yeah, we're not interested in rock bands or the like the pubs. I said, well, we're not. You know, we're actually quite unusual what we're doing. I said, well, you know, we'll see. And then a week later, he got the tape and he just basically, well, I want to release uh, a, a single. Uh, we'll start the tour in sort of like, I thought, tour? What tour? You know, it's like, um, hang on, we're not ready to tour yet. And this was all within like a couple of months. But they, 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 but they actually the single never materialised and the label never materialised either. But um, ironically, the same song was actually... Uh, picked up by a label called uh, named Glass, the Glass label, and they put it put it on a compilation, the Wonderful World of Glass, and this all happened really rather soon after we we actually started. Yes. And um, John John Peel, I don't think really liked us much. I mean, of course we sent him stuff, but you know, you know, it's a shame because I loved. I absolutely worshipped the author of John Peel at the time, really. But, um, yes. you know, you can't win them all. Mm. But we did catch on in places like the Netherlands and um, where, like, we were actually a radio station, VPRO, they, they did a whole hour special from our early cassettes, and uh, which was remarkable, really, because it's actually a national radio station. And that started the you know, the whole process in motion of where I moved to the Netherlands in uh, at the end of 1984. Yeah, because it was and quite... I actually lived there. Sorry, I was going to say, because there's quite a squatting li- uh, scene in the Netherlands, wasn't there? Or isn't, well, there might still be. Oh, I did. I lived in a squat for several years, yeah, in Amsterdam. Yes. And was that, um, I mean, yeah, actually, because a lot of the bands I've done from the UK, I mean, the 80s was also, there was a lot of squats in London as well. And often people talk about, well, it was really, you know, sort of coming from other places, you know, such as kind of America or or sort of Australia. So kind of landing in London, it was quickly, you know, like, oh, yes, you could just get a squat and be hanging out with various other members of different bands at at that time, you know. So did you did you also sort of have a sort of ready made community in the in uh, Amsterdam? Not really. I, I got to know people from the radio there, first of all. <clears throat> um, but uh, to be honest, I've always been quite a solitary person. So it's not like I was really searching for, you know, I just tended to, yeah, make music in my room and stuff like that. But then the rest of the band all came to join me. 
within a, a year and a half. And yes. Then, and uh, so we were literally based, all of us, in Holland. And that was when we began touring. We used to do these, like, 40-show tours of, of Europe, just basically playing every toilet that was available. And um, I guess that was the beginning of, you know, the whole journey because we because we played i think we played live about well, well over a thousand times by now yes and were you i mean was there i mean sort of during that period i sort of realized that a lot of people had sort of had that period i mean it was kind of like early thatcher the early thatcher years so there was a lot of unemployment and a lot of bands and musicians were sort of claiming unemployment or they were doing job seekers lands or the enterprise allowance scheme which often gave them a, a couple of years to sort of i suppose sign on have their housing benefit and council tax paid and um you know mess about playing music and sometimes kind of hitting gold with a you know making a sound that like I said, John Peel sometimes would get excited and play. So did you also have a similar sort of path at that point? No, really. I, I had various jobs. Um, and the, my last job was, was strangely as a sports journalist on a local pay, paper, which, was, which is odd because I, I don't really like sport very much. But it, it gave me a lot of free time. And it was a three-day-a-week three job. And it paid like a full-time job. And um, that gave me lots of time to actually work on the music. Yes. And, 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 um, and, and in a curious way, what were, the, what were the main sports that you had to cover at that point? Well, I, I did, there was football. I did, I did like football, but that was probably the only sport that I liked. Not that I was ever a player or anything, but I did just enjoy it to, you know, like enjoyed the beautiful game. Um, I didn't really connect with other sports at all, I must say. But I could write about them, you because, know, you know, you can write about anything if you put your mind. All you have, all you have to do is understand it. Yes. And um, But during this, this time, I was saving up as much money as I could. So, you know, I could ultimately just do the band full time. So but when... Oh, and I was going to say, when did that when did that period happen? Because by then, by the sort of the eighties, I mean there was um, I done an interview with the Momus and a guy called Lawrence from Felt. I mean they were bring, bringing albums out every year, and they you know Lawrence wanted to bring one album out a year from during the whole eighties and just managed to do it. But you were you were sort of really prolific. So I just wondered when you could um, do music sort of full time, even though it sounds quite a nice little number being a sports journalist. Um, it, it was from end of 1984, because going full-time came with moving to the Netherlands, basically. So I, I didn't have any work there. I mean, I didn't speak the language. Um, I just decided to go for it. I mean, it was, it was quite a low level of living. I mean, it was, a, it was actually kind of poverty, <laughs> you know, but, but it was worth it, you know, because, um, you know, so, sooner or later the what we earned from the live shows and um, played against Sam, the label was actually beginning to give us advances and things like that. We could just about scrape a living, but you know, we would all be living in the same place pretty much, which was, you know, wasn't very spacious. 
Because <laughs> I do, I do, I do love my rock documentaries. I do sort of. Was it a band called? Oh, I think it was Throbbing Gristle. I think they all lived together in the same house, and they put their clothes all in the same box every night and just picked up whatever clothes they wanted to in the morning, which sounded a bit extreme. But the eighties did have a lot of extreme things going on, didn't they? With with communal living and I, and squats as well could be quite harsh and quite bleak, especially in the winter time. So, did you? I mean, was it the some? Was it the thing that? Um, being young and being sort of resilient was was kind of keeping you alive. Oh, it did help. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, also like I'm, I'm, I'm basically I'm a, I'm a very obsessive kind of person. You know, I, I can live in the most extreme conditions as long as I'm able to do what you know I'm meant to do. <laughs> then and then I'm completely happy. Yes. So up to when you did Faces in the Fire, which was on Play Again, Sam. Were the records before that, you know, which were in sort of on on various labels called In Phase Records and uh, uh, Flow Motion, were they just your own label that you had created to to bring these out? No, no, there's a uh, guy called Pat Birmingham put out uh, the like he was he was the In Phase label. He also there was also Portion Control on the label and the first Marine Girls cassette was on that label. Um, and uh, yeah, basically, he moved into the flat that I lived in 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 Ilford, which is a very decrepit flat, to be honest. Um, he was living downstairs, and three of us were living upstairs. Two two of us were pink dots. Um, so we used his studio to make those first albums downstairs, and he basically fronted the money to release them. And I mean, there's only a couple of thousand of each to be honest, uh, that went around. Yes. Um, But, um, yeah, everything changed, uh, I guess, in around 1984 when there's played against. There there were a few labels that were interested in the dots, and we opted for played against Sam, but we we left the door open to record extra things with whoever we wished. It was like, basically, we never signed formal contracts with anybody. Uh, still the case, actually. Yes, well, I you know. know. We, we just uh, really, it was important for us to retain our independence. Uh, and um, yeah, it's, it's actually paid off because now we do now own our entire catalogue, which is like ridiculous. And um, so it, it's, it's possible to still live from it. In fact, you know, even in these tough times with, with the basically this, you know, nobody buys CDs so much anymore, but, but we can actually, you know, get by with our own little cottage industry and it's, it's very satisfying, to be honest. Yes, because a couple of weeks ago I did an interview with Martin Newell, the greatest living, was it the greatest living English gentleman? And he was saying a very similar thing. He said that he brought out a huge amount of work and he owns it. And though none of it earns a lot of money. It all adds up. He, he referred to it, um, you know, like he had, you know, he referred to pennies. If you add up all the little pennies, you think, oh, actually, I've just made, I can just about pay my way in life. And also he does other bits like the poetry stuff and a bit of, you know, the occasional one-man show, which again keeps the costs down. So, you know, he's, he's kind of uh, got his little niche in life. Can be cleaners full. from Venus. Yes, cleaners yeah, from yeah, Venus. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that's the man. And he was in a... 
I don't know, a few early glam bands as well. So, yes, the Venus. Uh, yeah, so that's Martin Newell. So he had a very similar sort of take that, you know, if you own, own your work and bring out enough of it and have enough fans, you can just about sort of add up all those pennies and go, yes, I can pay the bills and not go. Occasionally he said he had to become a gardener for a few months here and there just to to make things tie over. But, you know, he was happy. He was happy with it. And he's kind of felt like, yeah, it's worked out well. So look, so then as the 80s were progressing, because in that period I, I was kind of Mr. Indie Kid, listening to John Peel buying the NME and getting all very angsty with the, uh, what was it? Oh, yeah, Red Wedge and the whole political world of SWP. I mean, being in Holland, did you... I mean, at that time, it was just a very sort of divided world. You had the mainstream charts with that kind of production sound of Trevor Horn, and then you had that indie sound and plus other bits and pieces. I mean, how did you, how did you feel that you were sort of fitting into that musical world? I mean, I, I guess we were always very much to the left, <laughs> you know, Um it, it, I must admit, I, I, I left England for a number of reasons. You know, my reason the biggest reason was sort of a girlfriend in Holland. It was worth moving for that. But there were many reasons to leave the UK as well, because I really just couldn't stand the whole Thatcher sort of atmosphere that was, you know, basically crushing people. I, I, just, I just hated it. And Holland, from I guess from afar, I perceived to be a very tolerant, open place. I thought it was, you know, in a way, a, a, a promised land. I wouldn't say it turned out to be when I got there, but it, yeah, I, I did kind of find my way, I guess. Yes. And, you know, to live there as long as I did, you know, that says a lot, really. Yeah, and also at that time, I sort of vaguely remember sort of the 80s. You, you're often at that age where you sort of get to a point where, I mean, most people always talk about going travelling, especially in the winter, and going find and going to India. And if you've done Stonehenge and the solstice, and you've done India, sort of obviously, Holland was uh, or Amsterdam was famous for its coffee shops and sort of liberal politics and sort of probably you know squats and and all alternatives to see. And actually, Berlin was the same, wasn't it? Because everyone had to do national service in Germany unless you lived in Berlin. So a lot of that kind of you know left and anarchist movement all all obviously went. Oh, we're just going to Berlin and not having to do national service. So you got those pockets of kind of radical people and radical thinking. I mean, that's a bit generalised, but you know, you know what I mean, though, don't you? Oh, sure, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that yeah. that concentration does kind of help and also creating a community where people feel you know like quite safe that you're not going to get beaten up if you sort of look a bit of a freak I guess so that was yeah that would have helped and was it you know the other thing about being in a band obviously and you must have had so much experience dealing with the dynamics how were you dealing with sort of running and organizing a creative unit Oh, I've never been a great organiser at all. I, I find sometimes the tensions and, uh, you know, basically the inner politics can drive me mad. Um, <laughs> we've, we've had a lot of that over the years. And, you know, because I just basically wanted to focus completely on the music and I wanted everybody to focus completely on the music as well. I really didn't have time for like little disputes or I don't know. I don't know how to explain it. Yes. Well, Not I... that my mind's fluent at the moment, but it's, um, it, it's some, somehow that politics always gets in the way. You know, you know, you, 
you have a goal. You, you, you need to achieve this goal. You want to create something beautiful and everything should be about creating that beautiful thing. There, there can be no other distractions. There, there, there can be nothing that gets in the way of this. This is all that matters. And it's, and it's bigger than any single member of the band, including, of course, including myself. Yes. Well, it's quite interesting because I was spoke to uh, Joseph Kay from Blythe Power, who said it took him decades to learn that eventually Blythe Power was his band and it was going to be like, he suddenly thought, actually, I'm not going to try and run it as a democratic thing because that just ends in tears and people are trying to claim songwriting rights for royalties who didn't contribute to things and just like getting stabbed in the back by people that you thought, well, you know, it's not your band, it's my, you know, band. So I did, did you have to go through a similar process of thinking, actually, this, I am this band and, and some, and you have to move on, you know, rather than just have another meeting or another sort of bad atmosphere, which lasts months. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a tough one to answer. I've always tended to, I suppose, not really think so much about, myself or my part in it I just do it um yeah it's it's very hard I, I don't care about sharing the songwriting credits or even sharing the lyrics you know in, in terms of like all those early albums for instance <coughs> in fact all the late ones too basically the the credits for you know the author societies and everything they're still divided equally amongst all of us. Um, uh, so, and I, I really don't care. I don't, I don't care if my if, I, if I'm given the credit for writing a song or not given the, as long as the song is good. Yes. Um, you know, the, the, that's all. Ultimately, all that all that matters. Uh, I'm, I'm not really interested in any kind of personal glory. Yes. And as as we were trucking through the 80s with great enthusiasm, it was a bit grim, actually, at times, but the music was great. I mean, what I'd sort of noticed with most bands, you know, they have that five years, you know, where, like I said, the first 12 to 18 months of getting it together, you know, and, and if they got the John Peel show and then the first album, things were generally good. The second album could be a bit tricky, sometimes very tricky. And if anybody ever toured America, that seemed to finish them off. So kind of 87 time, you did an American tour, didn't you? That was with uh, Skinny Puppy. I was I was doing a solo opener. Uh, that that's my first taste of America. Yes, and that was, um, but that was that was quite a major tour. And most people from the UK, even Europe, never realise what tour in America is going to be like because we always think it's going to be some magical moment. And actually, it often <clears throat> leaves people feeling quite exhausted. So, how did you cope with the uh, Skinny Puppy tour? Oh, it was glorious. I, I loved it. You know, it's, it's basically if you're living in a squat and you're eating like four times a week or something like that, and suddenly you're traveling in a nightliner and you're eating basically every day. And the only thing is there were, there were moments on that tour where it was crushing. Um, like we play in a place like Miami, say, and there'd be this one guy in the audience who doesn't like what I do and he'll yell something like, you suck, or something like that. And then, really, you're just alone on the stage with, you know, a microphone, a synthesizer and a tape machine, and you feel basically very, very vulnerable. And um, it all comes... But, you know, the Skinny Puppy guys were just great to me. They, they really supported me and, you know, got behind me and, you know, like, he would do... <laughs> healed the wounds and 
whacked away the tears, you know, but it, it, was, it was a great experience. Yes, I would imagine you learnt your st stagecraft and also how to deal with uh, people who hated you kind of close up. <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> so then, as, as the 80s came to a close, did the band, you know, you had a, a split in the band. Yeah, that was that was the year after that tour. Yeah, that a lot of people were missing the UK, and you know, four members all drifted back to the UK, and there was just myself and Phil left at that point. Yeah, oh, myself, Phil, and Patrick, who still lived in the UK, but then he left, and um, yeah, then, then there were two of us. Then we just started building up again uh, from the Netherlands. So we became an Android Dutch band for actually quite a long time. Yeah. And how did you, I mean, did that feel, how did that feel? Did you sort of have a relief that, you know, things were moving or did it feel like, oh, I have no energy for this because I've got to pick it all up again? Oh, I always had energy for it. You know, there, there was no question that we would go on. Yes. Which was amazing. And did you, I mean, by then, you know, what was the sort of general audience like? You know, who was an, a, a sort of a, if you can uh, call it that, and sort of an average fan of the band? I just wondered who, who were the sort of people coming to see you? Sensitive souls, mostly. Um, we, we got quite a few um, of the gothic community coming to us, but also a lot of hippies. Uh, very often very gentle people get into the Pink Dots. Um, a lot of avant-garde people, like people who've been to Nurse with Wound, uh, the, the whole, that whole side of things. Not so much the heavy industrial people. We, we didn't really appeal to them because we weren't perceived as being hard enough. Yes. Um, but, you know, that's fine. We certainly were perceived as being weird enough for a lot of people. But... You know, it, 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 it was a sizable audience, really. It was it kept building, really. It was like the 90s was really the, probably our absolute heyday when actually we were getting actually quite large audiences here, and that surprised me. Yeah, absolutely. And also, I mean, the thing that often, you know, I found knock a lot of bands out is that, A, they've had a five-year period, which they've 24-7 been in this band with, you know, their one-time friends and now they kind of hate the sight of each other which doesn't help plus the music business and they haven't really earned much money but then the other thing that knocks a lot of bands out is that kind of musical the shift in kind of a musical kind of style and so you know with a lot of those indie bands that I suppose I, I'd have to say I loved you know by this sort of late 80s they were feeling a bit like well the drugs have changed everyone's into ecstasy there's the dance scene we're not really into the dance scene so that's kind of going to Kind of, you know, we don't know, we don't want to make that album that sort of appeals to that audience anymore. Then you had the grunge scene. Then you had, you know, from that Brit pop. I mean, were you just not sort of bothered with any kind of particular scene that was happening, and just sort of, and not having to worry that, because a lot of the bands were sort of saying, well, nobody was kind of writing about us or hardly wanting to come and see us. Not just the fans, which were bad enough, but also, you know, not being able to get any press. So I just wondered how you were dealing with those kind of musical shifts. Sometimes we were a little sad that nobody seemed to like care on the, on the, on a level that's sort of like enough to to write about us or something, but it didn't really change the music we made. Uh, you know, like scenes. Actually, I never had had any time for scenes whatsoever. You know, scenes just come and go. 
we're not going to sort of like just become part of the scene in order to, you know, maybe get a little more attention. We, we just do our own thing. I mean, I, I was always intrigued by some movements here and there. Like, I, I, like sometimes you hear something, you're genuinely impressed because it's a new sound, but, you know, something like Tricky, I remember early in the 90s, I thought, wow, that's really special. Yes. And, um, you know, things that sort of like open your ears and you think, well, this is really quite radical and new. And then you think, what what would it be like if I did my own take on that particular? You now, this is like, in, you know, soaking in influences, but it still is the Pink Dots. You know, again, it can't be anybody else but the Pink Dots. You're not going to ape anybody or sort of you have to do what you have to do. It's, um, yeah, and it still is the case, actually. Yes. So does it feel quite amazing that, you, that uh, in fact, next month you're going to be celebrating the 40th anniversary with a quite an extensive European tour? Yeah, yeah. It's kind of nice, but you don't really measure time. It's, it's weird, you know, for 40 years, that's bizarre. Um, because we've never actually split up and I've tended to actually live 24-7, you know, with the music that is made. You really just don't notice the fact that the time has passed. The fact that it was a 14th anniversary came as a, yeah, a little bit, a little bit of a surprise. It's just like, oh, God, indeed, it's been 40 years. It's not like something you, you're particularly focused on. Yeah. It, it just sort of like, seems to drop out of the sky the realization and it's like well why not <laughs> yes well I was thinking that um, it's often those moments especially because you did a you did quite a, a major tour in, of the U, uh, US in the autumn and then you got this one you know it, it gives kind of people and yourself a chance to sort of I suppose appreciate it and also sort of dust off the back catalogue I guess yeah, I mean, actually, we we don't play many old songs at all. Uh, we we do the old songs that we do we revamped for this time uh, because you know to just simply repeat things as they were indeed in the eighties it just seems a little bit like a a nostalgia trip, and you know then you end up being like a karaoke band. I'm not not interested in that at all, to be honest. Yes, you know, it has to be where we are now. And I just wondered, are there certain songs, though, that your fans are just thinking things like I Love You in Your Tragic Beauty, I mean, and, and Just a Lifetime, are they songs that you kind of have to play because the audience would, I don't know, throw something at you, a crisp packet? Well, I was, I was keen to, to do Just a Lifetime on this particular tour simply because of the lyrics, and it seems really pertinent at the time, and basically the planet's kind of catching fire. Um. But uh, we, we we do get the requests all the time, uh, constantly. Uh, but you can't, you know, I don't know how many songs we've made. I mean, you, you, you can't possibly, you just actually have to completely decide for yourself. Yes. And, and not, in a way, even consider sort of requests or, you know, even if people might say, would you ever play this? Well, maybe you would, but, you know, there's a song that we might want to play more than that, you know, right now, and we, we have to make that decision. 
Absolutely. I mean, the one thing I've noticed is that um, we often don't appreciate anything until there's been a passing of time. And, and I've sort of worked out roughly, <laughs> not that this isn't a solid theory, but 30 years often seems a period of time where people will then go... I just noticed that, um, yeah, you know, like there was music fanzines or records that were made. At the time, you think, oh, nothing of it. And then sort of 30 years goes and then suddenly it's like, oh, my God, don't throw it in the recycling or the bin. You know, let, let's archive it. And, and one thing that I've noticed with a lot of bands have recently, I say a lot, a few anyway, have made, you know, films have been made about them, you know, like the chills, the go-betweens, the slits, the uh, dolly mixtures. I mean, have you also been tempted making a film because i think you've got a dvd coming out haven't you have we got a dvd coming out is it a, a next up is a dvd a edition of 40 angels the archive. oh no it's it's it's, it's, it's an audio dvd a yes it's, it's dvd audio oh right yeah yeah it's um basically it's all the 40 pieces that are made for um 40 angels basically I just wanted to get all the music on one disc rather than making a huge collection of, of CDRs. So it's, um, it, it's, it's an interesting, you know, basically I signed a, an image to each of the pieces and uh, that, that's what makes it. But I wanted to present it, you know, in, in, the, in the spirit that uh, it was originally made. Oh, I've got you. Yes. And... Uh, so, like, I, I wanted the quality of the, of the actual audio to be as high as possible. With four and a half hours of music, you, you, you just can't do it on the CD. I, I just wanted it on the DVD. And for people who hate downloads, really. Well, but, um, yes. But it's all handmade, so it's like a huge job, to be honest. And I'm kind of doing it myself. <laughs> God, but, that must have taken, was taken so much time. Oh, it does. Yeah, it's, it's it takes a ridiculous amount of time, but yeah, in the end, people are pleased. So yes. Yeah, so, so, have you managed to also, you know, archive a lot of your, I don't know, stuff, your interviews, in, you know, because that, that's what I was trying to say was that there's been these films that have come out where people have managed to sort of get archive film, or and you know, cut in with you know current interviews and stuff like that to sort of capture the band and and you know what they've been through and done because you've obviously created a phenomenal body of work. So I wonder if that's been a project that you would be tempted or somebody's been tempted by. I leave that to Phil or to also to uh, some some fans of the band. There are Pink Pink Dots fanatical archivists out there, and they do basically. If I need something, I usually ask them if they've got it. <laughs> uh, I don't. I don't do it myself. I just can't. Don't have the time for that, really. But um, yeah, yeah, quite often I'll need to hear an, a very old piece that we did that might be extremely obscure, and there will be somebody out there that has it. And um, on Facebook, basically, we have this forum, which is you know, I, I hate the title of it, the biggest fans of the legendary Pink Dots. Uh, I, I didn't come up with that. It was um, you know, the person who started it. But um, it's a very nice it's a, a group of people. And um, they, they, there's a lot of communication through that forum. And uh, there are people there that literally, it's ridiculous how much of our music they have, you know, far more than I have. Like physically, I mean, I've often given my last copy away of something, but um, they they will have it, and so if I need it, they will always sort of like send me the 
a file of it and, or something like that, and it's great. God, that's so handy as having some like a, a slightly sort of I don't know, a PA person in sort of you know the internet land who can just say yes, I'll get it to you on your desk in an hour's time. That is very yeah. good. That's, yeah, that's good. what happens. Yeah. <laughs> and, and did you? I mean, because you have got this phenomenal body of work, have you managed to sort of keep the ownership? Because I notice, or you know, having spoke to people, you know, often the ownership of music is sometimes a bit of a, a tricky subject. So did you manage to sort of yourself keep a sort of all the rights to everything? We had to get the rights back from Play the Game Sam uh, at the end of the 90s. And, you know, but, you know, it had been a bit, yeah, of a wrangle with them for, for some years. But in the end, I, I think we left the label as friends, really. You know, we were not into, like, court cases or crap like that it's just you know life's too short for that yes and, um, and expensive yeah well we, we just never had the means or you know but, but you know they get they gave it back i guess we just weren't such a a great money spinner uh you know so we're not as interesting as as other bands they had yes absolutely um as for if a if a major label has released something or something like that, or they own the publishing rights, I just do the anarchist thing and just basically, why I'm releasing it, you know, sue me. <laughs> and of course, they never will because they're neither an international lawyer, and what the international lawyer would cost is far more than anything they would ever get from basically someone who hasn't got, <laughs> you know, sort of like pretty much any money at all. So it, no, it's fine. You can only win. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they probably think, oh, God, we've got worse or bigger things to worry about than <laughs> exactly. You've got, you've got to you've got to live in the real world. Yeah. So, so it never even becomes an issue in the end. You know, it's like, uh, you know, we, we don't deal with lawyers. If someone tries to serve me with a contract where I don't actually understand the jargon, like the legalese or something, I just throw it back and say please, English, or I don't sign anything at all. <laughs> and it seems to work. Excellent. That's that's a good thing. You like to sort of not have it on your desk, so moving it back to them is always a good one. And, they, and you know, someone's probably thinking, oh, God, not now. So, look, just lastly, well, not lastly, but do you sort of, I mean... Uh, you know, being one of those people who's always kind of keen on bands and fa being a fan of so many bands, you never, you know, like, do you sort of keep in touch with sort of a lot of your, you know, the founding members of the band or the early years, or do, you, or have you just all gone your own way? Well, pretty much, we, we we do keep keep in touch here and there. Like I was on the phone with Barry uh, just the the other day. Um, I've worked with Patrick recently because um, I did the uh, album with Amanda Amanda Palmer. Yes. And um, we got Patrick to join us on tour. So uh, that, 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 was, that was actually really nice. So I'll, I'll be, and Patrick is a guest on a forthcoming Legendary Pink Dots LP. Uh, you know, it was basically a work in progress. So, yeah, there tends to be like friendships. Are, you know, nobody's a bitter enemy or something like that. It just doesn't happen. It's not, not part of our world, really. Yeah, I just was thinking of your very, very early years with people like April and uh, people like that, whether the, whether occasionally you have the odd sort of correspondence and slightly amazed that the band that she was in at the beginning is still sort of 40 years later doing doing their thing. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm not in touch with April. It's a bit, bit sad. It, 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 that, that went a bit wrong a few years ago, which is a bit of a shame. But, um, it, you know, there's no bitterness there or anything. It's just like, you know, different ways. It went different ways in this respect. Yeah, absolutely. And just lastly, what would you say to an 18-year-old, your 18-year-old self, you know, who was starting out in, in that interesting and sometimes fascinating and murky world that is kind of music or the creative arts? Um, go for it. You know, people, everybody will tell you you cannot possibly make a living from doing something you love. I say that is completely untrue. Because if you believe in it and you're passionate about it, it will happen. And, um, well, it did. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it must be. Do you now feel a bit like an elder statesman in the the kind of music community? Because you've got that body of work, you've got that gravitas, that time, you know, no longer can you think, God, can I call myself an artist? You think, I am, because I've been doing it. I've been on this stage. I've been in this studio. I've got this body of work. I does, does that sort of alter your feeling or consciousness? Uh, I, I guess I, in some ways I find you mellow with the years. If, if, if you sort of like harbour just like a little bit of jealousy here and there about someone you vaguely know who's really made it and you didn't, then sort of like a, that's gone now, like for the decades actually has gone. Um, yeah, elder statesman. Well, elder, yeah, sure, statesman. Um, you know, I, I just basically uh, keep doing what, what what I've been doing for the la- indeed the last forty years. But uh, I guess I'm I'm as active with it as I was forty years ago. Yes, if not more, because it's every day. I was actually just making something this afternoon again. Um, you know, it's um, yeah, it's it's really worthwhile. I recommend it. <laughs> well, absolutely, and I mean, obviously, if you can, you know, I sort of I'm still impressed with you know the blues guys and then you know the Rolling Stones and um, Iggy Pop and all those people. You just think, well, whether you like the music or not, it's just the fact that they've still got that kind of drive and they're sort of yeah, at, that, yeah, at that age that you think. It probably hurts some days to do it, but you probably realise that when you're on stage, you sort of, you go through it, and that's probably a very good thing for the mind and spirit just to, um, yeah. Oh, totally. I mean, you know, on tour now, like, I mean, I basically lead a very clean existence. Uh, I I try and keep as fit as I possibly can. You know, I'm a, you know, absolutely convinced vegetarian. I don't touch any kind of drug, not for many, many years, in fact. And I hardly, I didn't really that much in the first place. Um, I, I maybe allow myself a margarita after a show. Uh, that's about as extreme as it gets in this respect. Yes. And I, th- I think that's necessary for, for long, longevity as well. Absolutely. Because I was noticing, because I spoke to a few people who have been touring, and, and are still just about keeping it together. You know, they really want to keep it together, but they realise that when they do a tour, it is a case of, like, kind of almost playing 30 dates in 30 days just because of the maths and the, the you know, just the costs of it all. Was that also something that with this tour in February, you've also, you virtually haven't, I don't think you've got a day off, have you? And that's It is a factor, yeah. It is, and there's a very tight schedule. So you must... Yeah. Do you sort of, I mean, you did America, so this is going to be a piece of cake. But at the same time, you think, 
Yes, February is well and truly booked. I will look forward to the 1st of March. Yeah, well, that is the point. After America, if, if, even if, if, if there's no day off at all, and it is looking like there will be possibly one day off, <laughs> uh, you know, it's still nothing compared to America because you know, we, we had drives that were just you know, going from San Francisco to Portland on successive days. That was such a killer. Um, because it, it's literally 12 hours away. So you had to go drive into the night in order to start early the next morning in order to get to Portland in time for the sound check. And Portland was a sold-out show. And it was like, it was a really, you know, we didn't want it to be bad. We didn't want to miss it all together. It was like, this is a really important show. And here it is the night after San Francisco, which is also a really important show. It's like, oh, that that becomes quite extreme. But, you know, we did it. And, um, you know, in a couple of days, you begin to, you know, we had two days off after, I think it was uh, Salt Lake City, no, Seattle, to get to Salt Lake City. So that was like luxury. We just had to drive and then, yeah, just hold ourselves up in Idaho or somewhere. And then, believe it or not, you do actually begin to heal on that single first day off and it's just like oh hang on then you then you actually start craving another show excellent god that's impressive but yes your days off are probably spent relaxing (laughs) Uh, not really (laughs) (laughs) yes but not partying no no i'm not a party person there was (laughs) and that is the end of the interview congratulations if you're still with me And that was uh, the legendary Pink Dots, and that was uh, my interview conversation with Edward Kaspoorn. So if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do at C86show. I will be there. Keep it positive, please. It's a tricky time in life. And also all these shows have been archived, and you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, and Podbean. Just do C86show, David Eastall. It's all there. It's in the mix. Anyway... Have a great week, stay safe, and we'll be back for more Thrill Spills and Belly Aches.